Welcome to Pro Se, Law 360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Bill Donahue. Hello, hello. And Alex Lawson. Hi, guys. Lots to cover this week, guys. Busy week at Law 360. Uh, the the uh, our, our annual um, diversity snapshot came out this week. It's uh, a really good look at the diversity, or we should say the lack of diversity in yeah. the legal business. Um uh, you know, it's it's obviously it's an interesting read every year, but this year it's coming amid a sort of broader reckoning with systemic racism. It's uh, so it's it's really interesting reporting. We have a lot of great stories out. Um, you know, the the top line stuff is not good. Uh, the uh, fewer than 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 ten percent of equity partners at at law firms uh, identify as people of color. Even fewer in when you get up into the ranks of law firm leaders. We say this every year, but as I said earlier. It takes on added significance this year, I think. Um, yeah, it's it's really great reporting, and I think those top line numbers you just gave everybody are not going to shock any of our listeners. But what yeah. I find um, to be so depressing about it every year is that the numbers just haven't moved. I mean, they basically stay really static. We're not seeing progress. Even slight progress would be something, but yeah, there's pretty a- static. Yeah, there's a there's a couple of interesting deep dives on the site too. If this is uh, at all interesting to you, I know we did we did a piece on how um, the pandemic is affecting uh, disabled attorneys, which is part of this as well. And also, Kara uh, Bayless, who's been on the show several times, did uh, some interviews with um, uh, black attorneys who have recently left big law, um, and they have there's uh, she did sort of a dive on the percentage of attorneys of color who have left uh, big law firms in the last uh, year, which also paints kind of a similarly uh, bleak picture. But the reporting is very good, even if the underlying data is, yeah. is discouraging. So I would uh, encourage everyone to And when we have a lot of good voices included, Kara's story is great. We also have um, a video that is in the words um, of yeah. some African-American leaders in the law who talk about their experiences. And it's, it's um, really a, a very moving video to watch, I think. It's really really a good one that people should check out. Um, But despite all that good stuff, we've got to dive into our own show today, which we've got some big things to talk about here too. We have Vin Guerreri on a little later on. He's our employment law expert at Law360. And he's going to talk about the hopeful day that maybe we'll get a COVID-19 vaccine and employers Mm -hmm. will want their workers to take it to try to get back to business as usual. And I am hopeful all that happens, but want or perhaps force their employees. (laughs) That's the problem, right? Maybe force, and can they do that? And if they can, are there going to be you know some sticky problems that come along with it? But before we get to Vin, we're going to get to the the news of this week, which I think uh, uh, has to start with a big ruling out of the Ninth Circuit on uh, on the NSA and data and and uh, a name we haven't heard for a while, Edward Snowden. Yes. Uh, So late Wednesday, uh, the Ninth Circuit ruled that the U.S. government's mass collection of telephone metadata from millions of Americans is illegal. Uh, And it made that ruling, uh, as, as you alluded to, Bill, more than seven years after former NSA contractor Edward Snowden kind of blew the whistle on this massive spying apparatus. Um, and it has lingered in the courts through a couple of different channels of litigation. And we got a really interesting ruling out of the Ninth Circuit this week. Yeah, lingered is the right word. I mean, we yeah. the the news has moved so fast, over, especially over the last few years. I've pretty much forgotten all about Snowden other than he leaked NSA information. That's all I really remember. So can you maybe reset me here and tell me, you know, the the legal history uh, that's gone on. 
Yeah, broadly, you know, you people probably remember that Edward Snowden was a former NSA contractor, and he revealed that uh, that agency, the, the NSA, had been collecting telephone metadata, which basically means everything except the content of your calls. So who you are, who you were calling, what device you were calling on, and when, and your location, everything but the actual content. They were collecting that metadata for years from millions of Americans, despite intelligence officials publicly stating at several different points over the years that the, that the government was not doing that stuff. It started in the wake of 9-11 and then was renewed in various forms by the secretive sort of foreign intelligence surveillance court, and it lingered on uh, until uh, Snowden blew the whistle in 2013. Now, even though these surveillance programs that were revealed by Snowden have mostly been peeled away in the face of public pressure, there's sort of like a ghost or like a specter of them that still hangs uh, over litigation that sprung out of the government's use of that data to sort of pursue criminal cases. And that's kind of how we got to this ruling this week. Well, you said that they were using it to pursue cases. What was this case that we're talking about this week that got this NSA program into court? Yeah, so the case involves four men who have been who have already been convicted of fundraising for the terrorist group Al Shabaab, um, and they are fighting those convictions, which is how we got to the appeal stage. And part of their appeal is to say that you know their convictions arose out of the metadata that was collected by these NSA programs, and that that data and that those programs are sort of per se illegal, and that therefore these these convictions uh, can't stand. Um, the government uh, and and the, the the government obviously argues the opposite. They say that these these programs are legal, or they they, they were legal when they existed in those forms, and we can pursue these convictions. Um, the judge uh, who wrote the appellate opinion this week didn't buy that. She said that the programs violated the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act's requirement that sort of any data that the government collects has to be relevant to a specific authorized investigation. Seems simple enough, right? Yeah, and what the government did here, when, when it's, it's easy to think about it this way. Like That, that sounds like a simple um, principle. It's, it's kind of basic Fourth Amendment stuff. Um, but here, the government, through virtue of these you know, massive collection of data, they just kind of had all of these calls on file and all of this data on file that these guys um, had conducted, along with millions of other Americans' data. And then when they when their suspicions were aroused, they were able to just kind of go through the metadata and pick out what they needed to pursue the case against these guys. Here was the kind of the here's the kind of the key quote uh, from the Ninth Circuit this week. Once the government had collected a massive amount of call records, it was able to find one that was relevant to a counterterrorism investigation. The problem, of course, is that FISA required the government to make a showing of relevance to a particular authorized investigation before collecting the records. So it's sort of an order of operations thing here. Um, now, notably, the court did not overturn the convictions here. They said, per se, like they, they said flat out, the data was illegally collected, but it didn't pollute the rest of the case. The rest of the case was sort of strong enough that this sort of original sin of the data collection didn't affect it. Okay, well, I mean, this all sounds like it, you know, it worked out and we're done here. Uh, all the Snowden things came out and they stopped a lot of these programs. These guys are still convicted. Are we all done here? No, not quite. I mean, to a certain extent. I mean, there's there's a couple of different ways to look at stuff like this. First of all, this is the second uh, appellate court to sort of flatly say 
that these NSA programs are illegal. The Second Circuit also did so in 2015. Um, also worth noting that this case is not over quite yet. The ACLU is actually representing the defendants here, and they have taken this up as sort of a bellwether case for the issue of, of privacy rights, and they have left the door yeah. open to either an en banc to the whole Ninth Circuit or to the Supreme Court if they, if they consider that proper. Um, but maybe more importantly, sort of any court's rebuke of the NSA programs, even if they don't exist anymore, is huge for privacy advocates. The ACLU like, went out of its way to applaud that part of the ruling, even though they, they lost on the merits, because it tends to inform future debates about the passage of laws. Because, like, I mean, every sort of law that could be passed about the government having the right to collect your data is going to hinge on when and how they are allowed to do that. And mm -hmm. so having circuit opinions on the record to say, to draw a line and say, hey, right here, like you need to sort of pin it to a specific concern you are having or a, con or a, a specific investigation you are conducting. That's important. And that's something that um, privacy advocates were really excited about when this, uh, when this ruling came down this week. Well, guys, we're gonna make a uh, sort of an abrupt turn here. I don't. I I hate to go from a ruling of sweeping constitutional importance to uh, <laughs> what we're about to talk about, but here we are. Um, uh, you know, I I will start by saying I think if you if you just generally speaking, if you're trying to get someone to stop doing something with a cease and desist letter by making scary legal threats. It's probably a sign that things aren't going great for that effort if the person then responds with a very public letter to you that cites cartoon characters as legal authorities. But I'm that's where it. we're at here <laughs> this week in the uh, never-ending, oh God, please let it end legal saga <laughs> of Michael Avenatti. Okay, uh, I hear what you're saying about never, like, oh God, let's be done with this guy, but... This this letter and the response mm -hmm. really were a, were a fun read. Yeah. Now, Bill, I I stopped reading the news in like the middle of 2018. Okay. Now that nobody, <laughs> nobody would blame you. And so, from where I'm sitting, Michael Avenatti is going to be the next Democratic nominee for president. That's that's where I left off. Uh, so catch me up to speed though, because I think I might be leading like a blinkered existence. I don't know if that's I don't know if I have current information. Well, he he burst onto the scene with the fact that he was representing adult film star Stormy Daniels in in that whole kerfuffle with President Trump, the hush money yeah. issue and all that. Um he he then sort of morphed after that into this like Hashtag resistance sort of uh, President Trump foe and he was on cable news a lot. And and as you alluded to, he even suggested at some point that he was mulling a run oh, yeah. for the presidency. Yeah, I mean, he got like credulous write ups in Politico that 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 wasn't just him like shooting his mouth off either. Right. But anyway, but the last story year, continued yeah. last year. It all came crashing down fairly rapidly for Michael Avenatti. Uh, he was charged with this bizarre extortion scheme involving Nike in February, and then he's since then he's been hit with additional criminal cases, one of which is that he stole hundreds of thousands of dollars from Stormy Daniels and embezzled tons of money from 
other clients. So he is, and he was, he has already been uh, convicted in the Nike case. He's awaiting trial yeah. in the other ones. So very rapidly from this sort of uh, uh, rising star in the sort of <laughs> political <laughs> talkosphere, and then he suddenly is this, you know, disgraced criminal uh, uh, convicted. Yeah. Criminal. Well, yeah. I love that you have to if you're like an embittered former client of Avenatti, you have to like, there, there's like a line forming to like get your money from him in terms of legal proceedings. Right. Um, I mean, it's also, okay, so he's certainly got a, a checkered record up to now, but you brought up that he sent a cease and desist. So who is he sending that to? What is he mad about at this point? Right. So we've sort of backed into this story. Uh, but um, that's okay. in 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 early August, Avenatti apparently sent a uh, cease and desist to Random House, uh, the publishing house, over the publication of True Crimes and Misdemeanors, which is the new book by legal journalist Jeffrey Tubin, which is uh, about the, the various investigations into President Trump. Perhaps unsurprisingly, Avenatti features fairly uh, frequently in the book, and he apparently believes that Tubin's portrayal in in various ways defamed him. And in this letter to Random House, he demanded a an apology and 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 whatnot. So he took issue, among other things, with Tubin's claim that he uh, quote ripped off his law partners. Um, he didn't like that that Tubin labeled him a plaintiff's personal injury attorney. Um, there were a bunch of other aspects of the book that apparently Avenatti was not happy with and said were uh, were were libelous. I can see why he would not love being called those things, but um, I think Random House took a swipe back pretty publicly. Uh, what did they have to say about it? Well, and that's why we're talking about this, because this letter, Tubin himself released the letter that Random House wrote back to Avenatti, and it was really just just one dunk after another on on an already fairly embattled uh, <laughs> figure. Um, I, I think contemptuous is the is the tone. I mean, certainly sarcastic, certainly mocking. Um, uh, and he set the tone for the letter right at the beginning. This Random House attorney, Dan Novak, uh, is the guy who wrote the response. Quote, I understand from your website that you boast of a great legal acumen. Nevertheless, few attorneys can claim to be master of all trades, jack of none, and then in parentheses, paraphrasing Bullwinkle J. Moose. <laughs> the quote continues, therefore, your lack of understanding of defamation law can be forgiven even if you just lost a defamation lawsuit. Damn, Ooh, I burn. I love, I love the idea of like you know you you talked about the like you know sort of back and forth over cease and desist letters can spill into public from time to time. I love the idea of this random house attorney or maybe the attorney they hired or whatever getting this and being like cracking his knuckles and being like I'm gonna go to work on this fool right now. Well, oh, and, it's, and it's getting put on the internet, folks. <laughs> this is funny too because the last few times we've talked about cease and desists it's been the other way around where the funny one comes from a company yeah that's right. trying to like yeah. lightly be like stop using our trademark or mm -hmm. you know that's a that's copyrighted true. thing or something like that and they do it in a fun and funny way and that's why it gets good pr this is yeah. the right. opposite of that well and and i think you don't write something this if you're at all concerned about actually going in front of a judge or actually concerned about the legal merits of an argument you don't write something like this if you're a serious That's attorney right. because you know that that no matter how much you want to dunk on someone else that mm -hmm. it's more effective to sort of to 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 speak in in you know neutral terms and to not to not go so over the top and certainly not to cite 
Bullwinkle J. Moose. So I think the the tone of the letter indicates uh, just how little they believe that any of these claims have merit. Well, let's talk about what else. I mean, you said we got a we got a series of dunks here, and this is obviously atypical for the way these responses usually go. Uh, let's play us play us some of the hits here. Well, everyone should go read the letter. The whole thing is hysterical from beginning to end. It's on Tubin's Twitter account. It's also on uh, Law360.com on our story about it. But um, uh, Novak, the Random House attorney, sort of methodically goes through uh, each thing that Avenatti claimed as defamatory and rebutted rebutted them, uh, often in very mocking and sarcastic tones. Uh, he says that the ripping off statement that I mentioned earlier is clearly a you know an accurate characterization of. The criminal charges that were brought against them just because there's no criminal charge of ripping off doesn't mean that this was that this was <laughs> false. Um, and he takes the chance to say that, quote, I assume you read beyond the paragraphs with your name in them uh, when referring to Tubin's book. Um, the plaintiff's attorney label thing. He said that Avenatti's argument was, quote, existential rather than legal because he just didn't like that he was being labeled as this. He also said that uh, it's just not true that you're not that because he cited uh, uh, specific occasions in which Avenatti had brought personal injury cases as a plaintiff. Like, sorry, um, man. These are the these are the facts here. Uh, <laughs> Novak said uh, that, 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 that other defamatory statements, there was one that like like the Avenatti. Tubin called Avenatti's presidential run an act of lunacy. Um, he said, clearly, those are just pure opinion. That's not the stuff you can sue for libel for. It's not provable wrong that it was mm-hmm. lunacy one way or the other. Um, I will leave us with this because we can get out of here. There's not a whole lot more substance to this ridiculous letter. But uh, the the scathing conclusion that Novak ended with, quote, you may define Michael Avenatti as you wish, attorney, advocate, fighter for good, race car driver, entrepreneur, presidential candidate, etc. But the public is free to reach its own conclusions. At present, the public currently understands you to be a convicted felon awaiting further trials. No matter how misunderstood you may feel, you will find no relief in a court of law. Get him a body bag. Holy smokes. The race for coronavirus vaccine is on, and the Trump administration has said one could be available by the end of the year. While that timeline may be overly optimistic, the promise of a tool that could bring back normalcy to businesses is pretty exciting for employers. But it's not all good news. Mandating inoculation for workers comes with quite a few legal risks. Here to talk us through all of the potential problems is our senior employment reporter, Vin Guerreri. Welcome back to the show, Vin. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me back. First time we've had you on during the... uh, pandemic and we have a real pandemic story to talk about with you. Um, I know. I know. Yeah. I want to get into, you know, it's a little bit of an optimistic projection here, but I'm hopeful that we get a vaccine later this year or early next year. What happens if we do? Can employers just tell all of their workers like, yeah, let's get back to normal. Everyone has to get this vaccine. I'll try to be as optimistic as I can. I don't know how how that's <laughs> going to work out though. Yeah. Um So the answer is pretty complicated, but generally speaking, yes, employers can mandate that their workforce get vaccinated. But there there are a lot of issues, like you said, like you mentioned, that go into that. 
mandate wouldn't be unprecedented. There are a lot of industries that already have these sort of mandates when it comes to flu shots. Mm -hmm. Um, Healthcare employers, for example, a lot of them might require people that work with patients to get flu shots every year for seasonal flu. Some schools might require, you know, teachers to have uh, proof of vaccination in order to be able to work with kids. So it's not unprecedented. There is a history of these sorts of mandates from employers. But in this case, obviously, given everything that's going on with COVID-19, it could be a little bit different. And when you have mandates, that means you have to enforce them, which brings upon its own set of problems. Okay, so it seems like generally speaking, it's doable to 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 do this kind of mandate. But I mean, what are the what are the difficulties that go into this? Before we get to the the legality of it, the statutes at issue, what are the, just the difficulties that go into trying to implement something like this? Right. So there's really two buckets that this issue might fall into. One of them is sort of the practical. So employers have to answer a whole bunch of different questions. For example, if you mandate a vaccine, who's going to pay for it? That's a major yeah, that's right. a major issue. Does it fall on the employee or is it the company's responsibility? Uh, is a vaccine even going to be effective? How long does a vaccine last? Will an employer have to make their employee go to get some sort of booster shot, you know, three okay. months, six months afterwards? Does the employer, it, are they going to require any sort of proof that a person actually went to a doctor or will the employer have a doctor come into the office to uh, to actually give out a vaccine to people in person? There, and, there are a lot of these weird and all that considerations. Us, well, well here's the I, thing. you promised that you would be really positive with this. And so far, all here is stuff that's really hard to figure out. Let's maybe, you know, some of those I don't really think have answers, right? Like this is going to have to be sorted out as we go. Yeah, there's no answer to a lot of these questions and different people, different employers, they're going to take different approaches and it's really going to be, there's going to be a lot of trial by error that goes into this. Well, I want to, I want to be that positive person for a change in a COVID story. Let's assume we do get the shots. They are proven effective. Um, An employer works through, you know, they decide we're going to pay for it. We're going to bring our own doctor in. And all we're mandating is that employees show up to get this vaccine. If we get through to that stage, is that legal at that point? I know you said it was comparable in some ways to how flu shots work. So what are some considerations once you're over these practical hurdles and you're just talking about what the law allows you to do? Right. So if you go into the legal bucket, uh, you can have a mandate. An employer can have a mandate. Many employers might not want one because of all the legal issues that go into it. They might just encourage employees. They might strongly recommend that they get a vaccine, but not actually make them do it. The EEOC right now, that's their current position. That might change later on. Who knows? But their current position is to just encourage employees to get it as opposed to mandating it. We'll see if that ends up lasting or if uh, or if there's any change to that. But if an employer does decide to do a mandate, the benefit of that is that more employees are going to get a shot. More employees are going to get vaccinated. Obviously, the more if it's a requirement, more people will do it than if it's not a requirement. But there are legal exceptions that employers are going to have to keep in mind. The two big ones, there's really two laws that come into play here. There's the Americans with Disabilities Act and there's Title VII, which uh, deals with workplace discrimination. So if an employee goes to their employer and they they say, you know, I 
can't get this mandated shot because I have a medical condition, it would be dangerous for me. Or if the employee says, I I have a religious objection, I don't believe in needles, I can't get the shot. Mm -hmm. In those cases, the employer is legally obligated to, uh, there's sort of a legal term of art here, but find a reasonable accommodation where the employee isn't going to have to get that shot. Now, and I'm also caveating this with uh, saying that it's going to be a shot. Who knows what a vaccine might look like. Could be something else. But an employer has to accommodate not having that mandate for a particular employee. So it could be teleworking, could be a mask, it could be putting them in a part of the office where there are no other people. There's a million different variations, but an employee, yeah. an employer has to explore that. Well, let's maybe talk about that a little bit more. So it seems like you definitely as an employer can say everybody at my company has to get this vaccine. That's OK under the law. But you'd have to make these exemptions, these exceptions for religious reasons or health reasons. What do employers need to look out for when they're determining who can get that exemption from having to get the vaccine? Well, firstly, the employee would have to actually ask for an exemption. Um, It's not something that an employer will just put out on the table on its own. It would have to be the employee that brings Mm -hmm. it up. But there's an entire process that, you know, there's plenty of legal precedents for in other contexts with disabilities in particular. When people have conditions that affect their ability to work, they uh, an employer has to explore ways that they can do their job that takes their, whatever their medical condition is into account. Mm -hmm. So the, with the caveat being that if it's too burdensome on an employer, then they can still kind of stand their ground and enforce whatever their policy is. So in the context of a vaccine, if an employer goes through the entire process and they figure out, okay, this medical condition that a person has, it's not enough for them to, be exempted from our vaccine mandate, an employer theoretically can say that the employee can't come into work. They can bar them from the workplace or Mm -hmm. even if they really wanted to be rigid about the policy, fire them entirely. But that would bring up a whole different, whole different slew of issues that they would have to be dealing with. I feel like we've talked about this with you a lot, Then that this, we get into this territory where I imagine employment attorneys are advising their clients to, you know, just be really even handed in how they would apply a mandate that they have to assess everyone uh, with the same criteria, for example. And that's the hard part here, because any exemption, there's no overarching policy that you can put into place. It's literally going through every single exemption request one by one and having to figure out each one individually, fact specific to each employee that asks for it. So you can't just put a sort of blanket exemption for everyone that fits into any particular category. It's got to be a, if you have a hundred different employees that ask for an exemption, the employee would have to go through each of those hundred cases one by one and make an individual determination as to whether an exemption applies in every one of those cases, which I mean, that, that, that can get difficult, especially if you have a bigger company that has hundreds of employees that are all asking out. Well, and another thing that could, I think, could get difficult here is that we're talking about discrete buckets here, right? Religious exemptions, medical exemptions. But anyone who's been following the political debate uh, that has that has accompanied the the 
COVID-19 pandemic would likely know that there will be people out there who just don't want to get the vaccine for whatever reason. They're anti-vax. They are opposed to this for reasons that are not easy to put into a specific bucket. What are the sort of, you know, the the rules for how that works? What can an employer do when they have those kind of employees and they want to mandate uh, vaccines? Yeah. If you were paying attention to the mask debate, this is going to be that on steroids, basically. Right. Um, it's going to be a, a very fraught issue. Just take a spin through any Facebook comment section and you'll see that there are a lot of people that are probably going to be very vociferously against any sort of uh, any sort of requirement that they have to get a shot. So legally, there may be some states that have protections built in for political speech, but those are few and far between. Those probably may not even encompass a situation like this that deals with the workplace safety issue. So generally speaking, an employer would be within their rights in, in most instances to tell someone that has a philosophical objection to getting a vaccine that they have to do it or don't bother coming into work on Monday. But if that happens, you're, the employer is now getting into a whole different mess. You're getting into employee relations issues. Uh, you could potentially have a major PR problem if you have, uh, you know, if, if an employer makes a makes workers get vaccines and all of a sudden it blows up on social media or elsewhere. And all of a sudden the employer is in the middle of a firestorm about whether to require a vaccine or not. So there are all of these sort of side issues that are on the fringes about when it comes to whether a vaccine should be required or not. Well, Vin, complicated as always. I mean, there's no easy answer for employers, but I'm glad you came on to sort of set the groundwork of what they need to be considering at this time. Thanks for coming on. You're welcome. We'll see how everything goes. Thanks, Vin. end our show with something offbeat. And I think you have a, a fun uh, judge one to share with us, Alex. Yeah, uh, I have a I have a fun judge one. Um, <laughs> <laughs> okay, my phrasing not great, but this judge has better phrasing than I do. Yeah, um, uh, a federal judge this week reached deep into the book of old-timey insults. A, that's, a, that's a soft spot of mine. Uh, in an immigration case this week, he dismissed uh, part of the government's argument as poppycock. In a, uh, in a formal that. opinion, uh, exclamation point included. Uh, what, else could what else could work here? Balderdash? Oh, don't get ahead of us, Bill. Uh, let's, okay, let's, sorry. Uh, let's, sure, sure, uh, okay, sure. Well, what let's not step the on the segment. What, yeah, what was okay. the actual, uh, what what was the poppycock exclamation point referring to? <laughs> what is this, what is this poppy, uh, the, the, the poppycock in the opinion of the federal judge? So it's actually kind of an interesting case. Uh, the U.S., the, the uh, U.S. Customs and Border Protection uh, has this policy now of allowing actual border agents to conduct the first round of interviews in the political asylum process. These are the interviews where you ask the person seeking asylum if they have like a credible fear of returning to their home country. So the government employs designated 
asylum officers to do that job. But they've been farming it out to actual border agents, um, saying that the that the two sets of employees, border agents and these asylum officers, receive comparable training so they can they can do both jobs. Uh, the D.C. federal judge Richard Leon uh, wasn't having that this week. Uh, he wrote an opinion giving an injunction to people who were suing over this. He wrote, poppycock, again, exclamation point in the opinion, poppycock. The training requirements cited in the government's declaration do not come close to being comparable to the training requirements of full asylum officers. So like I say, he gave an injunction. He said it was poppycock. Uh, And like you say, Bill, I was thinking about sort of other things. Uh, I mean, I don't know if you guys have favorites. I don't know if you're like your, your parents or grandparents ever... Ever dusted off things of that nature? Hmm. Well, what I mean, the there's, said, so there, there's, there's, you know, there's sort of a uh, a thing that you're you're yelling here to to say like non nonsense. Yeah, but the, you know, you could also a uh, uh, a scallywag. You could, you know, if you're if you're talking about someone, I feel like it's two different two different things. You know. Yeah. I am in the middle of watching Deadwood for the first time. Oh, and that's a, that's a top tier old timey curse word show, right? Yeah. I mean, I feel like I should just dig into my brain about like the seat. I've just I've, I'm in like a couple episodes into season two. What would Al Swearingen like scream at somebody across the bar? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like that would my, be the right words for here. My uh, my my grandfather was a uh, was a big fan of bunk. Calling oh, something bunk. bunk. Is good. Okay, that was sure. uh, and that's I've that's that that's lived long in my a nincompoop. Uh, memory. Yeah, yeah. You call a guy a nincompoop. I remember, of course, Antonin Scalia once called something that he didn't that that he found uh, to be a little uh, off was jiggery pokery. Oh, uh, that, uh, I forgot about that, but that was a fun one. Yeah, when calling someone a rap scallion. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I also like uh, calling things that don't make sense hinky. That's like a okay. little hinky to me. That's sure. a little more casual and like less definitive than poppycock. Uh, well, but anyway, uh, I'm really glad we've had thesaurus corner here yeah, on the Per Se yeah, yeah. Podcast. I um, uh, yeah, I appreciate when judges uh, uh, reach in, re- reach deep into the bag here, and I encourage it. Hope we get to talk about it more. Well, that'll wrap up our show for today! Exclamation uh, point! Yes. Good to have been with you, Alex. Thank you, and Bill. See you next week, guys. We also want to thank our producers, Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader, our graphic designer, Chris Yates, our guests this week, Vin Guerreri, and our contributing reporters, Cara Salvatore, Haley Kanath, and Suzanne Maniak. Music for the show comes from Silent Partner and Kelly Marcano. If you like Pro Se, check us out on all the major podcast platforms and leave us a written review there to help other people find our show. And if you want to read more about any of the topics we covered today, just check out our website, law360.com slash podcast. Thanks and see you again next week.